Did you see the stylish kids in the riot? Shoveled up like mocks, said the night on fire, wombles bleed. Truncheons and shields, you know I cherish you, my love. Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. Good everyone. It is episode 109 and it is the 14th of May. Fun show for you guys coming up. We are going to be talking to the IPA's Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. It, the election is only days away and we're going to be taking his temperature of what... Uh, we're taking the temperature of the election campaign, where the major parties are sitting, where a few of the minor parties and we know a lot of our listeners care about where they're sitting at the moment. Uh, and then next week we're going to have him on because a few weeks ago we had him coming in with all of his predictions so next week we'll get to judge those but now we'll just sort of talk about where are we at just a few days out from the election and apparently i'm in a conspiracy theory so tune around for that that was also news to me uh and then his own dot point yeah you'll figure out what that means later in the show if you stick around all right and we're also going to be talking to dr darcy allen and professor jason potts from the blockchain innovation hub down at rmit university they're coming to us live from new york and the gigantic uh blockchain conference uh Convergence? No. Consensus. Consensus. The other one. Consensus 2019. Well, well, machine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, big conference down there at Consensus 2019 in New York. They're going to be talking about the state of blockchain in the world at the moment, whether or not I'm going to get my money back. And, uh, yeah, we got into some really cool territory about uh, the nature of democracy under blockchain, which... Mm. uh, it was very interesting to me. A lot of the first time I'd been hearing about a lot of that sort of stuff. So hopefully you guys like it too. Yeah, you can sell your vote. Yep. And we love blockchain here at the Young IPA podcast. We do indeed. One of our favourite things. Yes. Uh, okay, so let's talk about uh, the election because we are now at that point where literally any policy proposal is on the table. Mm-hmm. Anything that the major parties think are going to get some votes, that's all fine. Philosophy, out the window, mm. coalition, we now like socialism apparently, uh, anything to get you through the last couple of days. So basically for us, it is just hunker down and hope not like hope you can hold on to some bit of taxpayer money. That's right. Through all the promises that are being made at yep, the moment. exactly right. 100% tax rate coming up. Yep. Uh, and so what we had was a campaign launch for the Liberal Party last week uh, because the campaign only starts... Uh, last week, apparently. It's weird. Why are the campaign launches right near the end? Well, because what they do, like, until they launch it, they can use taxpayer funds. Is Once you launch, right? it's on the party's money itself. That is amazing. I did yeah. not know that. Sorry. That's How did why, you know that, actually? Well, because I was like, why is this like that? And people are like, well, because uh, there's, mu- like, because politicians like spending other people's money and you've sometimes. Got a cu- curious mind, and you found out. I did. So the big one that came out of the Liberal Party campaign launch uh, was this interesting one. Interesting in the sense of like that's interesting that you could possibly think this is a good idea. Mm. Um, but anyway, so we're going to be talking about this with Evan later in the show. But the idea is basically, and fill me in, Pete, because I'm still getting my head around it. So pick me up if I fall down. Okay, uh, I'm a real wonky policy head. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, exactly. I'll... And a supportive teammate. Uh, so it is a $500 million scheme, which is basically going to help people buy their first home. So the idea is if you can uh, afford the first 5% of a house and you've saved up enough for that, the government will then guarantee the next 15%. So you don't have to go for insurance and that's going to make it easier for people to buy a home. But the problems are that it's encouraging people to get further into debt. And also that's a whole lot of money in making sure that people can afford a first home, which is exactly how we got into the GFC in the first place. And no one seems to remember literally 10 years ago. Look, James, I think that you've done a pretty good job of Thank summarizing you. that. Um, the key that fact- actually makes me feel worse. If Pete, if Pete thinks I did a good job, I'm, I'm less sure of myself than I was 15 seconds ago. Well, you know, you asked for my help and I <laughs> gave it to you. Yeah. Look, if you want to know what kind of policy this is, Labor moved to 
match the idea straight away. Yeah, within hours. Yeah, 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 like almost straight away. So, look, we've introduced all these measures to make it more difficult for people to get loans. And now another part of government is saying, as Evan says later, yep. um, it's a bit hard for people to get loans. Let's make it easy for them. So this, you know, I'm starting to think that maybe government's not the best uh, body to be looking after this sort of stuff. Yeah. I know uh, this is, we, we sound like a broken record about this, but, you know, every week there is a new aspect of this. But this is a Liberal Party going like, okay, housing in Australia is a huge problem. We've got a lot of li- listeners out there that would like to own a home one day. Mm-hmm. Pete and I would like to own a home one day. How do, you, off of both how do you know I don't already own a home? <laughs> because I've known you for longer than 15 seconds. I could I have... Sort of, just have a picture of who you are as a person and where you're at. I could have holdings everywhere. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, you I don't. don't. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, obviously young people do want to buy houses and there should be policy that helps people buy houses. So, But what we have is the government going, hmm, we should get more involved in this rather than why don't we get less involved, deregulate, make it easier for people to build apartment blocks in places, which is going to build, uh, which is going to make house prices come down and therefore it's easier. So like, why is the Knee-jerk reaction to get more involved with something well, from the Liberal Party. I don't know if you're aware of this, James. In a few days' time, we've got this thing called an election. Yes. And the government <laughs> wants to get be the government yeah. again. Yeah, so like four minutes ago when I said anything's on the table, nothing matters anymore. That's right. Uh, yes. That's okay. what this is. I forgot that I, things that I already said. John Roskin had a quote in the Sydney Morning Herald. Yep. Uh, executive Director John Roskin. That's right. The Coalition can hardly complain about Labor having the government pay part of the salaries of childcare workers when the Coalition is offering to pay part of the cost of the house of home buyers he said this is just awful yeah now Strong i words i liked it better I, his comment around the office was why don't they just give people houses yeah i think you should have gone with that yeah that's good as well uh yeah so john roskam quoted in the sydney morning herald so we shared that on the ipa's facebook page yesterday um so go back and check that out because yeah john had a few words to say about that uh, and you've also got Daniel Wilde in the Daily Telegraph this morning uh, on it. So go to ipa.org.au and you can read Daniel's article about that as well. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, let's move on to another story, Pete. Uh, this one coming out of America. Well, this is pretty crook, James, this story. It's uh, it's pretty depressing. Harvard University administration has surrendered to a mob of student activists demanding that law professor Ronald Sullivan get the sack uh, as faculty dean of Winthrop House, whatever that is, um, oh, an undergraduate residence, as I've, as I've got here on my notes. Yep, you've definitely <laughs> read this before. Uh, over his trauma-inducing decision, uh, trauma-inducing in, in uh, air quotes, decision to join Harvey Weinstein's legal defence team, of course, Harvey Weinstein being the Hollywood director who's... Uh, Producer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, whatever, movie boy, um, <laughs> who's, who's in trouble for That's being so a creep, funny. effectively. Um, student activists described Sullivan's decision to represent Weinstein as not only upsetting but deeply trauma-inducing and uh, shows that he the Winthrop House does not value the safety of students that live within Winthrop House. Now, he remains a law professor, it should be said, so he didn't get the sack completely from Harvard University. But let me just read you this guy's CV, James, because if this guy gets the sack, we're all in trouble. Uh, he uh, advised Senator, Senator at the time, Barack Obama, on criminal justice issues in tw- 2008, represented the family of Michael Br- Brown, in their suite, uh, suit, sorry, against the city of Ferguson, Missouri, and is responsible, get this, responsible for the release of more than 6,000 wrongly incarcerated people. So if this guy with the, with the impeccable left-wing credential, uh, credentials can get sacked, I, feel, I fear for you know, Saul and you yeah, and well, me. He's more credentialed than me to talk about law. Um, so, yeah. Releases 6,000 people wrongly mm. incarcerated. That's amazing. Yeah. 6,000? Yes. 
but yet he accepts a job of someone who we should say is still innocent until proven guilty, mm. accepts that job, and it's too traumatic to even be in the same room. Yeah, it's like, well, what's the what's the upshot of that? Yeah, you can't ever represent someone accused of a crime because another person who's been a victim of that crime, yeah, is experiencing physical exactly. pain. Like it's not only is this a classic case of you know the outrage culture, and uh, I want to be correct on the internet, so I'm going to lobby to have someone fired. But mm. it's also just like a complete perversion of innocent before proven guilty, because mm. basically what you're saying is he's already guilty. How dare you accept the job of a guilty man? Uh, you also have to get fired. So do, yeah. do people accuse like do high profile people accused of terrible crimes just not get legal representation now? Based on this. They can't. Yeah, like what if like every person involved in the OJ case was just like, well, we can't have you back at our law school now. Yeah. Like that, that's where that's at. And I think what's interesting about this is that this isn't like some air conditioned, air conditioning company, right? That doesn't know about this stuff. It's just trying to get, you know, trying Wait, to get- This to, isn't about an air conditioning company? It's not even about a ceiling fan company, which was the other thing I wrote down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cause you know, like, like these companies, right? They don't know how to handle these arguments and I can accept how they just want to get rid of the- um, what's the word? Scandal, right? Yeah, yeah. Just keep business ticking over. But this is Harvard. Yeah. You know, they should be able to explain why they're going to keep this guy on, why, you know, a person accused of crimes deserves a lawyer, you know. And so if Harvard are going to give up, what hope do they have for everyone else? Yeah, and it's like if students are like, well, look, I can't personally stay at Harvard if this guy stays here. Well, it's like, well, we're not exactly strapped for cash here. And I reckon there's going to be a few people that uh, didn't get into Harvard that are going to be okay with that. Yeah, I mean, they're not, yeah, exactly. They're not a buyer's market. They're not uh, looking for customers. Even the student activists were surprised. One of them said, my honest reaction is just completely gobsmacked, but yep. in the best way. I didn't expect this to win. I just wanted to be correct on the internet for an afternoon. Yeah, exactly. So look. Yeah, I saw there was one protest which was only attended by 50 students and Harvard went <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> what do we do? the hills. Yeah. Nah, it's pretty pathetic and yeah. pretty bad. And this guy's achieved a lot. Yes. And is someone that would you'd think would be absolutely untouchable, but he wasn't. Yeah. And this is something I only bring up uh, you know, not that like, because I think it is, you know, in a sense material, because we are talking about, um, you know, a few social justice issues. Mm -hmm. But I should point out that Dean Sullivan here, the guy getting fired, uh, and his wife, who also might get, uh, might be asked to leave as well. The couple became the first black faculty deans in Harvard history when they took their positions at the place 10 years ago. Well, there you go. Like, you know, you, you think if anyone should be, uh, you know, a, a on the poster of just like, look how progressive we are to be these two, but you accept the Harvey Weinstein job. So you're gone. Yeah. It's incredible. Like these, these people have, you know, unimpeachable records on this stuff. Yeah. And I think actually, although that's terrible, what you just said, I think it's actually potentially a positive because clearly this is identity politics eating itself. Yeah, exactly. If these people can't, survive something like this yeah, no one can no one can and people will just be like you know what maybe this isn't the right road maybe this down. is not that all it's cracked up to me yeah uh, all right cool so uh that's a really interesting one we'll keep monitoring that one and tell you guys what happens with it uh i see a reinstatement coming on sorry i see a reinstatement coming on uh you're more optimistic than me but hopefully well you know peter reed uh, academic freedom still exists in Australia, so hopefully the same sort of principles apply in the US. And there's one thing the US does have, as we'll discuss later in the show, it's the First Amendment. <laughs> oh, God bless America. Uh, anyway, uh, no, no, no spoilers. I'm no so spoilers. excited. No spoilers. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. So uh, i got another one here. So Oliver Yates is an independent running for the seat of Kuyong. This is becoming one of the main battlegrounds of the election. There's a whole lot of different people running for Kuyong, a whole lot of high-profile people. Currently, Josh Frydenberg's there. We've also got Julian Burnside throwing himself into the ring with the, with the Greens. And we've got Oliver Yates as a very high-profile independent candidate. Now, um, 
Obi Yates sees himself as a soft liberal, I think. Maybe that's how he's built, or maybe that's how he sees himself, but some configuration of soft liberal. Like, that's the pitch. The sensible center. The sensible center. So let's just uh, take a temperature of the sensible center at the moment. So this is Oliver Yates on the 9th of May on Twitter. If elected, I would seek to have the Murdoch Press's li- press yeah the Murdoch Press's license to operate in Australia removed if they continue to threaten our democracy and our safety. The sensible center, Pete. Where where do we stand? Well, I didn't. If that's a sensible center, I am as alt right as they come. Apparently. Well, yeah. I mean, that's let's just clarify. James was joking there, but yes. uh, um, yeah. No, look, that's bonkers. And th- these people are the sensible center. They say, you know, oh, look, I'm a liberal person, but. You know, I'm not a crazy right winger. And then it's like, mate, you're off your guts. No, I think there's some difference between uh, I'm a liberal voter, but, and then I would actually have the entire Murdoch Press's license to operate in Australia removed. Is there? I think so. Like, that is so bad. Yeah. Like, no, the so- only papers should be the Age and the Saturday paper, <laughs> like, in yeah, a that- heated competition into what is the most like boring front page. Well, I mean, look, the age would then turn into the rabid capitalists that we all know that they are deep down. Yes. Um, look, I didn't realise we needed the licence to operate the press here in Australia. Well, as we find out with Evan later in the show when we talk about it with him, mm. we don't. So we don't need to look into getting one? No. Okay. Um, uh, tell uh, we're the bad boys of podcasts. <laughs> we don't need licences. <laughs> our licence uh, is our fists. Oh. <laughs> That's awful. All right. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so that is a wild one. Hopefully this guy goes down. Hard, but uh, polling suggests you will. Yes, uh, and I will laugh and laugh, and then I'll laugh some more. All right, uh, Pete, let us talk a party that is doing quite well, which is the Brexit Party. Well, we're very suspicious. We're, sorry, if I may tee you up a bit more, Pete uh, is the leading Brexit mind in Australia. If anyone has been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, they will know that if there is one man that we can trust for the Brexit stories, it's Peter Gregory. Well, I might not be the, the best Brexit mind in Australia, but I'm in the top three Brexit minds in this room, and. <laughs> I have a people in this room. I've got a story for you. <laughs> no cap We need to explain these things. We don't like polls here at the Young IPA podcast unless they come up with the things we like. And this one has. The Brexit Party allegedly, well not allegedly, according to this poll, will earn more votes than Labor and the Conservatives combined in the European Parliament elections coming up and could even beat the Tories in a general election. The Opinium poll in the Observer focused on the European elections came up... Uh, got Nigel Farage's party to get 34% of the votes. The same poll gave Labor 21% and put the Tories in fourth place with 11%. Even more extraordinarily, uh, a poll commissioned admittedly by the Brexit party or or by a Brexit party donor and published in the Sunday Telegraph said for the first time that the Brexit party would beat the Tories in a general election. So... Like, uh, yeah, I I think we can put the second one aside for a second because I wouldn't mind a bit of... Like, a few more polls before I start going, what's their chances in the general election? No, we just like polls that come up with stuff we like. That's <laughs> okay. the rule. But let's talk about the opinion poll, which is the 34% of the vote compared to the 21% and the 11%. So they're going to storm away with the British election, uh, which is hilarious. And mm-hmm. if I can refer us back to when we first heard about the Brexit Party, I made the very bold prediction okay. that the Brexit Party would do quite well. So I am looking pretty good. Well, James, you have a razor-sharp political mind. Uh, it's almost like the British people care about democracy. Yes, uh, I like because we're probably going to head to a second referendum for Brexit. This gives me hope that it is going to be hilarious. Yeah, like, oh. a, a second referendum is going to win by even more. Well, I'm in favour of a second referendum if it Brexit wins again. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> so you're only you're in favour of opinion polls that only come up with what you like, and also general elections that only come up with what you like. Yeah, yeah, referendums. But um, look, these elections are in nine days. And yep. I think I care more about them than the Aussie election. Oh, absolutely. Because this is like 
it's not, you know, stupid policy issues that are exactly the same. It's like, yes, we care about democracy. Screw you yep. for killing us. Not killing us. You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Figure uh, of speech. Well, yeah, it's definitely more interesting than the Australian election. I mean, uh, quick guessing game for you, Pete. How many seconds of leaders debates do you reckon I've watched between Scott Morrison and, uh, and Bill Short? Zero and ten. Uh, I reckon zero flat. I've, <laughs> I've yet to see anything. It has been Game of Thrones and NBA playoff season in my defence, but it is just not really been uh, the most thrilling election no. debate, uh, election in our time. I think a lot of sides, even both sides of the, the aisle are saying that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, we'll move on to a final story, unless you have anything more to say about nah, look, that covers it. this week, Pete. Um, all right, so uh, here's a cool one. So Democratic candidates, they're starting to whittle down. We had last week uh, Kirsten Jellyband uh, talk about the greatest innovation in political history where everyone just gets $600 to donate to political candidates that they like, mm-hmm. which uh, I still predict will mean that every single person will run for the general election next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, the next presidential election. Um, this one's actually good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, terrible. This yeah. one's actually good. So, Pete uh, Buttigieg. Yeah, uh, we, I think we said we fi- Buttigieg. Buttigieg. All right, so Pete Buttigieg uh, is uh, one of the candidates. He's, I think, top five at the moment, depending on which poll you go. Um, you know, mayor from a small town in the Midwest. And he gave a speech to the Human Rights Campaign, a major LGBT rights group. And interestingly, he's actually calling out identity politics. He mm-hmm. doesn't like it. He thinks it's divisive. And, it, you know... They say it's a risky speech, which is a bit weird to talk about how we're all individuals is now a risky speech. Yeah. But I guess that's, that's basically strategy. what we're at. But anyway, he says identity politics is a, that like there is a crisis of belonging in America at the moment. And it was exacerbated by, quote, so-called identity politics. Uh, and he says how, look, uh, you know, it's impossible to know other people's life's experiences when they're in different demographics than you. And he says, that is true, but it doesn't get us very far, which is really cool uh, to hear a Democrat say all this stuff. And honestly, like, if you want to start winning people over, like, surely that's one of the ways to go about it. Because the Rust Belt states that went to Trump instead of Clinton aren't exactly on board with identity politics, I'd say. Um uh, he says, uh, what I worry about is not the f- president's fantasy wall on the Mexican border that's not going to get built anyway. What I worry about are the very real walls that we are putting up between us and we, as we get divided and carved up. Uh, so my other question for you, Pete, as mm-hmm. I go on a very long rant apparently, uh, is does um, does Mayor Pete read Dr. Bella DeBerra's articles? Well, I think so. I mean, yeah. it seems like all the movers and shakers do these days. You know, the Queen, this guy. Yep. There's someone else. <laughs> this There's guy. Oh, she got retweeted by Jordan Peterson. Yeah, so... Um, Bella getting cut through. So, look, I think that you're right. I don't see why I think identity politics could be equally unpopular with Democrat voters as it would be with Republican voters. And I think that he's right, and it's really good because a lot of those Democratic presidential nominees are seriously into it. Mm. So the fact that he's not is great. I would note that for all their talk about identity politics, a lot of the leading candidates for the Democrats appear to be white males. Um, and finally... Apparently, so here's a weird thing I found about this guy, right? Like, he gets questioned about this stuff all the time. You know, how do you think you can represent American people and minorities as a white male? He's actually openly gay. And yeah. if he was elected, would be the first president ever to be openly gay. Yeah. But it's like, that's not enough for no, people? Not enough anymore. <laughs> how Sorry. is that not enough for people? Yeah, well, because he's white and male. Like, we need every single demographic done. Uh, even in this article, it says, the nagging concern that as a white man with a Harvard and Oxford pedigree, he's the wrong candidate at a moment where Democrats seem to be pining for someone who can embody the lingering inequities faced by less privileged minorities 
I don't think that's what the last election came down to. It's I like don't only think Clinton satisfied a few more demographic things, but it's like that. And then it actually it really says didn't. in this article that comes despite the fact that Buttigieg, if elected, would be the first openly gay president. Yeah, like that. Still not enough. Not enough, for you guys. Not enough. Like the most powerful country in the world. Yeah. Never had a gay president before. Like uh, I get that you're gay, but yep. you are white. Uh, I also like the idea that um, they go like, well, clearly the Democratic base is calling out for someone with all these. The no. two leaders are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's what people are calling out for. I don't know. I'm not con- convinced they've learned the lessons of the last election. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, that's the right thing to be saying, but we'll see how it goes. All right, that is it for uh, the stuff we're going to talk about at the start of the show. We'll now go to our interviews with Evan Mulholland, Dr. Darcy Allen, and Professor Jason Potts. Uh, and before we do, uh, head on over to ipa.org.au. We've got Daniel Wilde's article in the Daily Telegraph from this morning, which I talked about. If you want to learn more about the housing bill, uh, sorry, the housing announcements from the coalition, we also have Dr. Bella Debrera, absolute friend of the show. Talking about uh, Labor's push for a national gender centre, that is also in the Daily Telegraph, so you can go read that, and you can also listen to last week's episode of the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, which you can also do on any other podcast platform, as well as listen to this one. Make sure you're telling all your friends and family about that. Make sure you're subscribed to both, and if you do listen through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, make sure you're leaving us a five-star review now. This would be the part of the show where we do cross over to Nina. This is sad. This is sad, but unfortunately, uh, it is with a heavy heart. Uh, that we announced. And it's even heavier hard considering that uh, it's Saul here now. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Nina has unfortunately <laughs> left uh, the podcast. She has escaped uh, something. She's left for uh, bigger and better things, mm. which to be honest, could be literally anything in yep. the world. Uh, where, you know, <laughs> so good luck to Nina. She's but now in the second rung. Yeah, so she's, <laughs> she's made her way out of the mud. Uh, she still has a lot of mud to wipe off, but uh, she's definitely on her way up. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we've had a lot of fun having Nina on the show, so we're going to be very sad to miss her. And uh, yeah, but we do have Saul here. And Saul, I'm not going to make you uh, do the membership pitch. <laughs> so Thank you can you. put those eyes away. <laughs> <laughs> Saul was absolutely terrified for a few seconds there. Uh, but anyway, so head on over to ipa.org.au slash join. I've got to stop. I, I, I regret giving Nina crap for like uh, this part of the show because it is harder than I think it is. ipa.org.au slash join. The IPA has got a bunch of different membership programs. You can become part of our community. You can start standing. Uh, you can stand up for freedom of speech and all these other freedoms in Australia. And you can support the work of the IPA. So ipa.org.au slash join. Uh, and if you're already a member, you can donate to our causes. If you like uh, what we talk about on this show and you want to help out, that's where you go. All right. Uh, let us go to our interview with, I think we start with Evan. So let's go with Evan. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show the director of communications here at the IPA, our spin man, uh, mm-hmm. the man in the media, the man watching the media, Evan Mulholland. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Now, we had you on a few weeks ago at the outset of the campaign to make official predictions. Now, that's still coming up in next week's episode where we sort of put you to the test. And I've got to say, I had a look at them. You're doing pretty well. You were doing pretty, pretty well. But a lot of a lot of elections still to be had. They don't call them a spinner for nothing. They do not. Um, but uh, we thought we should get you in. This is going to be the last Young IPA podcast before... Forever. <laughs> I mean, not. What do you know that I don't know? <laughs> uh, but anyway, this is the last IPA podcast before the elections. So we want to get your temperature as a man that's uh, very, very, very much involved in the world of the election. So what are you seeing at the moment? What is, what's your general impression of where Liberal and Labor are at? 
Um, I think it's very close. Uh, it certainly has tightened up if you look at both news poll being 51-49 to Labor. That's certainly coming a long way to where it was sort of the end of last year. So I think um, Scott Morrison is a much better communicator than, say, Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, he's a lot better campaigner than Labor thought he would be. Yeah, that's ironic, by the way. <laughs> Turnbull, the great communicator, and then Scott Morrison beats you. Well, people just want a direct message. They don't want sort of waffling around, and, and Scott Morrison certainly delivers that. So Scott Morrison had his campaign launch on the weekend, uh, announced a, a number of things, but uh, there was obviously no former leaders there, as they usually are at these things. Uh, Labor had Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard in the same room, and they also had Paul Keating there. Turns to the Liberal campaign launch, no former leaders there. Um, obviously, uh, well, the message coming out of Scott Morrison's camp was that he just wanted to be about him. Uh, so it was basically a brand ScoMo launch. Uh, and in his words, wanting to have a direct conversation with the Australian people. That's quite odd, isn't it? So didn't want to get Howard there at all. No, no. Howard even was someone who wasn't involved in, in the, the squabbles? UK for a lunch with the Queen. So. Oh, okay. Uh, I, to be honest, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. That sounds uh, better than a campaign. Launch. Yeah. So com- compare both approaches. What, which one did you think worked, or did both of them work? Uh, uh, they had their 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 negatives and positives. I mean, seeing. Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard in the same room actually reminded me of that moment in the 2010 election where they were like looking over a map of marginal seats and sort of having a faux catch up together and making it seem like they were getting along. Um, so it did remind people of the um, uh, what happened in the Rudd-Gillard days. Also, Paul Keating just crashed an ABC uh, set up and, and did an um, a interview where he talked about uh, the Australian security agencies and and uh, and he called them wackos or something like that, and um, that caused a lot of controversy and uh, caused the coalition to attack Labor, and Labor then had to retreat on that issue and, and say they didn't agree with Paul Keating's comments. So when you say uh, took over an, uh, an ABC setup, he literally just walked up to Andrew Proven and sat next to him and started um, talking to him. He just said, "I've got some thoughts here. Yeah. Get, get your recorder. Out, mate. <laughs> yeah, are we live? Good." <laughs> yeah. Put your finger on that dumb button, mate. You're going to be needing it pretty soon. Yep. Uh, so then we go over to Liberal campaign launch. So you say, Brant ScoMo, we don't have Tony Abbott, we don't have Turnbull, we don't have John Howard. Like, um, wh- what did you reckon with that? Yeah, um, um, it, it it was Mother's Day. There was good imagery there. He had, had lots of promotional videos of Scott Morrison talking about his trouble having kids and then uh, him and his wife and his mother and ended up having the imagery of him walking onto the stage giving a bunch of flowers to his mother and his wife, which all looked very good for a Mother's Day, but there is a week to go. How are you going to sell those policies from that campaign launch? Now, one of the policies which the RPA have had a bit to talk about, Daniel Wilde in the Daily Telegraph today, check it out on the RPA website, um, was to um, for the government to guarantee uh, your uh, deposit uh, over 5%. So... If you've got only 5% of your home loan uh, as a deposit, um, the government will guarantee the 5 to 20% uh, so you don't have to pay a mortgage insurance, like a lender's insurance. Um, we think at the IPA this is very worrying um, uh, and I think it goes to consistency. You can't, on the one hand, I think rightly say uh, that it's socialism to directly intervene in the market in childcare, for example, and directly subsidise wages. Um, and then on the other hand say, well, we're just going to go in and uh, put the taxpayer on the line uh, for the ups and downs of the $1.9 trillion property market. 
Yeah, and also just like when we talk about, because housing is a huge problem in Australia. So yeah. as a Liberal Party, is the idea like, oh, we should, you know, get the state involved more or should we deregulate so there are more houses and more apartments around? It, exactly. And, and, and the Royal Commission has uh, just come out and slammed the banks for giving out loans to people that can't afford it. And then you've got the government coming out and saying, oh, we're just going to uh, help you along with that. Um, you've got one side of government uh, being APRA um, uh, cracking down on the prudential ratios uh, for lending, effectively pushing up the deposit requirement to 20%. And then you've got another side of government saying, oh, wait a second, like you only need 5%, we'll just back you in the rest of the way um, on, on that. So it's it, as far as consistency goes, there's no message of consistency from this government. Yep. And then, sorry, one more thing I want to say about that. Like, I know the circumstances are different, but we still remember what happened last time people started getting loans for the first homes guaranteed, right? That's, like, what started the GFC. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. It literally, literally went belly up in the States. Anytime, anytime uh, the, the states in Australia have tried to intervene in this kind of way, it's ended up in tears, whether it be, you know, first home buyers grants and, and whatnot. It's just literally pushed up house prices to the exact amount um, that they're giving out. Yeah, I'm starting to think the government might not be the best agent to fix the property market issues. Um, so what's, so is this, this is a pretty socialist policy. Is this, is this just a vote grab? Is that what we're going for here? Yeah, I think so. And it's pretty telling. Like on the face of it, it does seem popular. Um, uh, it, it is the major barrier for a lot of young people getting into the housing market. Um, and it, it's not surprising that Labor straight away have come out and said, yep, us too. We're gonna get. We're gonna. We're gonna do this as well, which I think could be even worse and could have a worse effect, especially considering the ALP's negative gearing policy. Um, that at the same time as a policy like this could really have a substantial impact on that on the housing market. Yeah, well, I think it helped Jacinda Ardern over in New Zealand get elected talking about housing prices. So. Could be something in that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll move on to another one that we uh, saw and has been getting a fair bit of media coverage. So Oliver Yates, a guy running in Victoria, had a fair few questionable things to say about the Murdoch press. Yeah, yeah, this was very interesting. So Oliver Yates is an independent candidate running in Kuyong uh, against the Treasurer, Josh Feidenberg. Um, and he's trying to put himself out there as a, a soft liberal um, a, he's he's the former head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, so is another one ob- obsessed with um, renewables. Um, and he, I don't think he's really a soft liberal at all, especially considering what he said about the media. So, in promoting some Greenpeace report uh, with conspiracy theories, you were actually mentioned in it, James. Oh, um, I actually missed this. Yeah, and uh, and he said that um, as a result of this, if elected, he would seek to have. The Murdoch Press's licence to operate in Australia removed if they continue to threaten our democracy and our safety. Mm. That is outrageous. Like, that is an absolutely outrageous thing to say. There's a few things wrong with this. First, you don't need a licence from the government to operate a media organisation in Australia. Yes. We, are, we have a healthy democracy, and healthy democracies mean that media don't need a licence. Yeah. Uh, secondly, how can you ever say you're like a soft liberal uh, independent candidate if you're willing to do things as dangerous as shut down an entire media organisation? Yeah, well, I think in his figuring out he's extremely left-wing but also rich, so that's why he's a soft liberal Yeah, in the common way of thinking about it. Yeah, he doesn't have to worry about 
economic yeah. advancement. He's already rich. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's I like the the in this train of tweets that he's talking about. At the bottom, he goes, "It's all here in this report," and links to a Greenpeace report. Like that's some kind of <laughs> yeah. And if you, you, <laughs> if you <laughs> read yeah. if you read the Greenpeace report, which I did, it's did like you? a map of conspiracy theories. It's basically what the report says is that a lot of people that work in the mining industry also have been staffers before, and some people that work in the mining industry also um, have been journalists at News Corp Mm. and then have been staffers as well. Like, um, I've got a a suggestion for you, Greenpeace. A lot of people work in different industries uh, with similar themes. One of the things they mentioned was, as one of their conspiracies about the IPA, is that uh, Andrew Bolt's son also works for the Institute of Public Affairs and made that link in saying that somehow... Which is uh, true. News Corp... (laughs) Somehow News Corp, IPA, yeah. uh, uh, and the mining industry are somehow all in it together. No, yeah. I am actually a secret agent. Was, um, was he his own dot point? Did I say that? It was like dot point, dot point, dot point, and the last one was like Andrew Bolt. I've made it. Yeah. I've made it. This is the big time. I think it's about time you got called out by the, the, the people of this <laughs> oh, country. Oh, it's definitely the first time someone's made that connection but, um, on the uh, internet. Uh, just, on, just, just on Oliver Yates, he, he had a bit of a breakdown yesterday. There was a Greens poll that came out that showed uh, the two-party preferred being 48 to 52, Josh Frydenberg ahead, but the Greens second, the Greens were polling about, I think, 25%. Julian Burnside. Julian mm. Burnside. And Oliver Yates came out and said on ABC, he had a bit of a breakdown, said, oh, this wasn't the arrangement we got into. There was a different candidate with the Greens to start off with, and, and we, had, we had an arrangement that they would support me because I'm the only one that can win. He's polling like 9%. It's actually quite sad. Um, he's the saddest candidate going around in uh, the election. If you look at his Facebook, it's just really sort of low-energy stuff. Oh, that would be a fun thing to do. Like, who was the saddest candidate in the election? Mm. It's definitely Which, Oliver Yates. Still, definitely Oliver Yates? Definitely, 100%. All right. Um, Awarded. <laughs> all right, signed off. Uh, let's talk a few of the minor parties. So... There was this report that came out like a week or two ago that Clive Fine was actually polling pretty well. Do you reckon there's going to be anything coming out of that? Yeah, his poll his polling's going up and down. Um, uh, the interesting like he's he's you can't escape Clive Palmer. So if you're a regular, he's got your number. He's, so he, the, the, I reckon a quick run. Mate. Yeah, he, he's got your number. He's text he's texting is, you. Um, he you're a fat shame. Uh, when you open every single daily newspaper this week, he's on the first two pages. Literally every single newspaper. He's all over the internet. He's all over your Facebook. Um, so you can't escape him. He's polling in Queensland. He's polling like six or seven percent or something. Um, but nationally, he's polling about four percent. So is One Nation. What he's done though, he's he, he, in slamming the major parties. He's actually um, uh, preferencing them as well. Um, so you'd think you know this anti-major party rhetoric. He might go through some minor parties before he comes back to the major parties. He's actually put One Nation, for example, behind Labor and the Greens. So he's basically saying. I'm going to get elected to the Senate or no one will, um, which is a real disadvantage to some minor parties on the right that are coming through, for example. Um, so I think you'll see, I reckon you'll see probably at least two Palmer senators uh, and Clive Palmer himself probably in the Senate. Yeah, sweet. That's good news for me because if there's one thing I like, it is photos of Clive Palmer falling asleep in the Senate. So I'm glad to get another three years of opportunities to see those. Good Absolutely. news for James specifically. Yeah, and, and only James, to be honest. Uh, let's talk at some other ones. So we had the Liberal, uh, we had Kirstie O'Sullivan from the Liberal Democrats on last week. Uh, there's also the Australian Conservatives. These are minor parties that people on the right are looking at as like, you know, I want to protest against the Liberal Party. Sorry, these are where my vote's going to go. Do you reckon there will be any senators from either of those parties? 
Um, it's hard to say, uh, perhaps in New South Wales, um, but I think the way the Senate um, uh, system works now, they'll need at least 140,000 votes uh, to themselves before they get over the line. And I don't think they've got much preferences coming from other parties as well. So you might see a case where Australian conservatives could get up possibly in New South Wales. Sophie York um, might get up, um, but it's it's hard to see where they get over the line. I think in Victoria, the likely like I'd love to see Kevin Bailey or, or Rob Kennedy and for the LDP get up, uh, but it looks like the likelihood is either Hinch or Palmer will will get that last spot. Um, I think a lot of Puff has run out of Hinch. I think it was very novelty that he was running the first time, second time. Are people going to vote for him again? I'm not sure. Who do you reckon is going to win the election, Evan? Um, you asked me this last time, and I think my verdict is pretty much the same, is that Labor will probably win, but it will be very close. Hunt um, Parliament close, or do you reckon they'll be outright? Um, no, I think they'll get get there in their own right, but just. Um, it could possibly be a, a hung Parliament. Um, the way the AAC distribution has worked is that Labor gets over the line on a 50-50 basis anyway. Um, on the same results as 2016 election, Labor will win just because they've got an extra seat in Victoria or a couple of extra seats in Victoria and an extra seat in ACT. Okay. And what are you up to on election day, Evan? Uh, I'll be I'll be hopping around between a few seats, uh, uh, helping a candidate out in Corwell, uh, which is a safe Labor seat. But then uh, um, I might pop into the footy in the middle of the day. Uh, Saints are playing... Collingwood, so uh, so go to the so, footy. Yeah, so <laughs> you're a good friend until the Saints play. Might, might pop in there for a froth, and then uh, in the afternoon, I'm going to help Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong. Very cool. Uh, the footy ends at five thirty. I think it ends a bit earlier than. That. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Evan has got this figured out. Yeah. He's planned out this day months in advance. If we know Evan, all right, cool. Uh, so I'll have you back on next week to talk about the election. But uh, Evan, till then, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Okay, we now welcome on to the show. Very excited for this one. So we've got Dr. Darcy Allen and Professor Jason Potts from the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. These guys are coming to us live from New York. They are at the Consensus 2019 conference. It is a huge conference in the world of blockchain. So I might just start there uh, with Jason. First, what is a blockchain? And two, when do I get my Bitcoin money back? <laughs> yeah. So blockchain is like a new a new technology that happened about 10 years ago and everyone's still trying to figure out how it applies to, to everything. Basically a new way of doing record keeping and data. And wherever you find wherever you find data and information, um, there's a use for this. It's a way of essentially enabling firms or different people to share the same um, ledger or, or the same data set. And that's going to be enormously disruptive to a whole lot of industries. Uh, that's very interesting, but I'm very much more focused on the second part of my question, which is when do I get my Bitcoin money back? I've already spent that. That's oh, gone. Damn it. All right. Just get over it. <laughs> okay, but let's be serious. So um, blockchain has an interesting history. There was obviously the Bitcoin bubble and everyone started talking about blockchain a whole lot and there was a whole lot of cut through in the media and then there was a sort of crypto winter, I guess. So is the crypto winter over? Yeah, the, the consensus here is that it is over. I think um, Bitcoin prices punched to eight thousand US dollars today, um, which is up about seventy percent, I think, in the last nine months. So there's this huge increase. But I think there's a general consensus that the huge speculative and quite crazy bubble is is is, is well and truly over. And mostly, what we've seen is a whole lot of new infrastructure and projects being built. They're being tested. It's a lot more rational and 
serious space now. So I think there's, there's a lot more maturity in the sector. Sensational. Now, Darcy, you and Chris Berg had a fantastic piece in the Foundation for Economic Education website about how blockchain can address a lot of the problems that cause global poverty. Essentially, blockchain allows entrepreneurs not to replace but compete with a lot of bad institutions that create poverty. Do you want to talk our listeners through that? Yeah, of course, of course. So, yes, Chris and I wrote a piece. um, And I think it's useful to think about a little bit of a history of what development economists do. So, Development economists look at developing economies and they go, okay, what are the problems here and how can we fix them? So they might look at things and say, okay, there's not enough savings, so we need foreign aid. Okay, investments aren't coordinated well, so we need central planning. Um, And the problem that really economists have converged on is institutions and institutional failure. And what we mean by that is there's a lack of property rights, there's a lack of rule of law, there might not be identity or um, financial systems. And the problem is that it's really hard to change institutions because there's a monopoly on institutions. There's, there tends to be one government. Um, that government might be corrupt or there might be other democratic issues. Um, and we're super excited about blockchain, as Jason mentioned, as a sort of institutional technology. So blockchain can be applied in developing economies by entrepreneurs to try and achieve that institutional change. Now, this is exciting because as free market economists, our response development is pretty poor, pretty useless. We just look at developing economies and we go, okay, can you be a little bit less corrupt now? Or can you um, implement a special economic zone? Or maybe we'll try and push some sort of revolution and just hope that it turns out to be liberal and achieve reform. But now we have a technology that entrepreneurs on the ground in developing economies can act entrepreneurially and create, create competing systems um, of smart contracts that compete with the existing law system. Um, they can track their goods along supply chains. They can, they can institutionally compete with existing systems. And I think this is super exciting for, for free market economists looking at the developing world and looking for decentralized solutions rather than centralized ones. That's right. I, I love that piece. I found it really interesting and exciting, really. Is there any examples of this happening already in the developing world? Yeah, there is, and there's a lot of a lot of this is experimental. Um, but we're seeing a lot of work, as I said, around supply chains. So this is trying to track the information as goods move along supply chains. So a lot of developing economies produce agricultural goods, um, and they ship those off to other countries and export them. Um, and if we can get better information about the quality of that tuna or where that um, particular coffee was grown. We can, we can get more um, economic value back in the supply chain to those primary producers. Um, and also property titles is a big one. Um, property rights in developing economies are, are an ongoing problem. And we're seeing a fair few countries trialing examples of creating new property registries using blockchain rather than the government. There was a fantastic example was given today at, um, at Consensus by what's called the um, Open Money Initiative. And what they were dealing with was the the complete collapse of, of Venezuela. So Venezuela's socialist government has completely ruined its money supply. And um, basically all of the citizens are left without a functional money. So what's happened is is, is that um, entrepreneurs have come into that space and um, brought Bitcoin essentially into Venezuela to enable citizens to sort of rebuild their economy themselves privately using new technologies of money. And this is incredible. This is, this is, essentially um, the private sector fighting back and actually supplying 
um, money of all things directly into an economy to enable um, poverty-stricken just people who've been destroyed by um, the depredations of their government to rebuild their economy privately. And it, it's super exciting because we're used to thinking about entrepreneurship in developed economies as making it extremely prosperous, right? We know that people start new businesses, they compete, um, they be, they're innovative and so on. And now we're seeing that same process occur in the developing world as well. But it's on the level of institutional change, not just on the level of creating new businesses. Right. That's really exciting. Uh, I want to bring this back to Australia. So when we were all emailing back and forth before this interview, Jason, you put up an article basically about this pop-up economy that was happening in Melbourne that sounded like just stepping into Alice in Wonderland. Do you want to tell us a bit about what's going on there? Yeah, so one of the things that the that blockchain technology enables you to do is essentially to spin up your own private economy. And we've been thinking about this you know, in the Venezuela case of spinning up money for the entire economy. Um, we're doing all sorts of work around supply chains. But what happened on Friday night, a few Friday nights ago in, in Melbourne was that a group of developers called FlexDaps um, spun up their own private economy for a party that they were having. And this enabled sort of a, a money supply for the party so that you could just bring along um, beers or whatever else you wanted to trade. And you could use this technology for um, creating essentially a sort of um, a private economy with all of the functions that, that would, would um, that, that would be needed for institutions. And this is interesting because it's a proof of concept that it can be done at a really small level. You spun up for a particular purpose just for a night. Um, you had property rights and money and, and record keeping all functioning for, for that fun purpose. And it was easy to do, easy to use. So what this does is this is proof of concept that civil, this is, that civil societies can use this technology. And that's how we, how we, start to rebuild that process and use this technology as a way for individual citizens just to rebuild the sort of institutions that they need for any type of, 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 of economy, whether it's just organizing friends around for a party or whether it's running an entire um, crypto state. That sounds really interesting, Jason. Where, where do people go to find out more about this if they want to go to the next one? <laughs> um, I think these things are a little bit on the dark web at the moment still, but um, the there's a lot of really exciting entrepreneurial entrepreneurs in Melbourne and startup companies in this space. This one was called FlexDaps. Just email Jason, folks, if you want to go. I think that's probably the key. Darcy, you've got a book coming up along with Chris and uh, Chris Berg and Aaron Lane, friends of the show, called Crypto Democracy, that offers a pretty revolutionary application of blockchain to democratic governance. Why don't you tell us about that one? Yes. Yeah, so this is this is a little bit more of a an extremely ambitious book project that probably started out over a few conversations at the pub and ended up in a book. But um, what we were thinking about really that's all was, good books do. We talk about, yeah, well, that's normal. That's the start of our process normally as academics. Um, so what we were thinking about was, and this is pretty relevant for an election right now, is we talk about the, the reason we have democracy is to make collective decisions, potentially between millions of people, um, we all have different preferences and we try to form a government who works on a day-to-day basis, effectively or otherwise. And what, when we talk about democracy, we think about that we own our own vote. So we think about it kind of as our stake in society and we can do with it whatever we like. But if we think of a vote as a property right, then they're extremely regulated property rights. The government tells you when you can 
walk in and vote for someone. They tell you the number of people you can vote for. Then those people go off and you can't do much really for three or four years. Um, it's a highly constrained right. I can't really easily buy it or legally buy it or sell it. Um, so we wanted to think, well, what happens with this new technology called blockchain, which essentially enables you to have a better, more complete property right in your own vote. Um, we can use blockchain as a ledger that records all votes. And what that means is that we can create a system where um, the, the democratic process becomes more contractual. So instead of voting for the six candidates that I have in my electorate of Cooper, um, I could potentially contract my vote to Pete um, and Pete could vote on my behalf and then Pete could send that vote to someone else. And what we have then is we have a, a process of democracy that's actually much more um, emergent. It doesn't necessarily presuppose a particular structure of representative democracy. Um, and what, what the book is going through is what we think the implications of this are. Because if we look back through history, we know that when we have new technologies of democracy, then the shape of democracy itself changes. So in ancient Athens, we developed technologies to enable us to do sortition more effectively. Um, transportation technologies enabled us to create a representative democracy, um, so on and so forth. And the question is, well, what does blockchain mean for democracy? And we think it makes democracy look a lot more like a market where we're trading votes between each other um, and the parliament really emerges out of that or there may not be a parliament at all. So what you're saying is, Darcy, I can sell my vote. Yes, Pete, I will defend your right to sell your vote. Folks, go out and buy this book. This is, actually, that's a good point. Where can, oh, sorry, go on, Jason. So, so this is really interesting because we have laws against this at the moment and we have secret ballots and we have all of these things. Um, they, they exist to, to, to suppress the market for votes. And there are, there are a few reasons for that. And one of them is that people think that um, it's generally a bad thing to buy or sell your vote and they can hold that position if they wish. But the other one is that it's really hard to enforce these contracts. So if I want to sell my vote to you, um, how do we know that I've actually sent that to you? Um, or how do you know that I have voted the way that you wanted me to vote in the poll? Um, and we now have a technology that really enables you to um, enforce those contracts. Um, for instance, I could send my, um, I could say, okay, I'm going to write a smart contract that gives my votes on econ economic issues to Pete and my votes on social issues to James um, because I actually don't like the bundle of things, that preferences that my candidates have at the moment. And I want to split my vote up. Uh, so this is getting into pretty hardcore libertarian status. So I'll probably just throw this out there, but wouldn't that give people with a lot of money that can buy these votes uh, sort of an undue political influence? There's a few responses to this question, and I think it's a very legitimate question. There's a lot of work going on um, around creating and putting into the particular constitutional protocol um, rules such as quadratic voting. So quadratic voting is an example where you could buy more and more votes, um, but the price that you pay gets higher and higher and higher, right? It's a quadratic function. So it becomes, it becomes prohibitively expensive to buy lots and lots of votes. And for instance, we could have a market where if I want to buy um, 10 votes, I pay a huge amount of money, um, and all of the money that everyone's paid goes into a pool, and then it's redistributed per capita across the population, right? Now, this is, this is a bit of an extreme example, 
But it's interesting, right? Because we know there's we know there's money in politics, right? None of us can deny that. I mean, the swamp exists and it's there for a reason. In this in this circumstance, it kind of distributes that compensation between the population rather than just putting it within that political class. All right, fair enough. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the conference. So you guys are in New York right now. How is it all going over there? So what are the big things that people are talking about in blockchain at the moment? At Consensus 2019. Yeah, so the Consensus Conference has been going for five years now, and every year has been a bit different. The first year it was very much crypto libertarian anarchist developers. Um, then it became sort of the very early stages of this of the industry. Last year it was hugely hypey, and and a lot of industry players were there for the first time. This year it feels very a lot more mature, and what we're starting to see is. The real discussion around how this is going to affect entire value chains and entire industry sectors and some of the really practical problems of, of adoption. We're seeing a lot of regulators on stage sort of dealing with the questions of how they adapt to this new technology and try not to kill it. We're seeing a lot of discussion around um, regulatory competition between nations where one of the main themes here today was how America is falling behind other countries, including Australia and Singapore and even China, in um, innovation competition in this new technology. So what we're starting to see is regulators worrying that they're killing innovation and and sort of coming at this from a very practical perspective that um, they know that sort of bad behavior or, or sort of any attempt to really try and crush something has enormous consequences. So really interesting to see this sort of global competition in the sector emerge um but yeah it's 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 basically a very we're only 10 years into this technology since it was first invented and we're already having some really quite mature discussions around um how this industry is playing out and shaping up and 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 what will be disrupted by it i might just add to that as well from a from a free market perspective it's super exciting to be in a room of you know there's 5000 plus people here um, and we're having legitimate conversations about how are we going to build this new economic infrastructure of the future, right? How are we going to build these platforms? Um, are they going to be built by consortia? Who's going to own them? Um, these conversations didn't used to happen in industry. Previously, when we were building big infrastructure projects, they were centrally planned, right? We were building railways, we were building all of these different projects. Um, and now we're basically seeing this process of decentralized building of infrastructure in a really new community that gathers in New York once a year and discusses all these regulatory issues. Yeah, I found it really interesting that you said that regulators are starting to attend the conference and even speak. So when a regulator does take the stage, how long is the booing from the crowd? Is it like a matter of minutes? Is it more of an hour situation? Yeah, like it was sustained for a while, but there was actually some cheers and clapping when the regulators basically admitted that they were worried about killing the sector. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you guys are having a great time. Where can people find out more about all the stuff that you guys are working on at the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub? So probably the best place to find our work, we publish a lot of our work in academic journals, but we also publish a lot of it on on Medium. So if you search for um, RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub on Medium, you'll, you'll find our work. Sensational. Uh, brilliant. Uh, sorry, Professor Jason Potts, Dr. Darcy Allen, go follow all of their work. It's really interesting stuff. Hopefully I get my Bitcoin money back very, very soon. So thanks so much for joining us on the show. Cheers, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
All right, thank you to Emil Holland, Dr. Darcy Allen, and Professor Jason Potts for those interviews. Very interesting stuff. All right, uh, let us get into some stories in a matter of life this week. And uh, this one is a segment we haven't done for a while because um, there aren't a whole lot of cool things in the world, but when we do find one or when Pete finds a cool thing, mm. he, he wants to talk about it. So, Pete, what's a cool thing? Well, I've always got my eye out for cool things. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I've got one for you this week. And You're like a magpie. You're just constantly distracted by cool things. Just can't focus on any one thing. That's right. Like a magpie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Norwegian Minister for the Elderly and Public Health, uh, Health Sylvie Listhorg, which I think is the correct way to pronounce it. Although Let's it go with that. Uh, so she gave an interview last week where she said, I think people, so this is the health minister, right? Mm-hmm. Newly appointed like a couple of weeks yep. ago. She said, I think people should be allowed to smoke, drink and eat as much red meat as they like, she said yep. last week. Uh, the government may What prov- year is it? it? Well, it is 2019, James, but you wouldn't know about it based on this quote. Uh, the government may provide information, but I think people in general know what is healthy and what is not. She said she didn't want to be the moral police in government. And you're sure it's not 1952? I'm sure it's not 1952. <laughs> what, what a world. She actually went on to say, you know, smokers are prized, blah, blah, blah. Where do we want to send smokers in the end? Are they going to have to go into the woods or up to a mountaintop or down to the docks, which I thought was an odd choice, in order just to take a drag? Well, a lot of like, uh, see, yeah, the wind blows it away so the smell doesn't stay in one particular area. That's true. be my knee-jerk guess. Um, yeah, crazy that we have a health minister that's like people should be able to make their own decisions. What an just absolute Just anywhere legend. in the world of a health minister that says that. What? Yeah, oh, look. Look, and she has cop- copped a lot of garbage from the usual su- suspects based yep. on that, like her own department and, you know. <laughs> Just anyone other involved people, in public health. Other people who yeah. say, I don't think she understands public health. And like, I think that I think that's the point. Don't you remember when public health, when you get into the public health thing, they make you sign a document saying, I do not believe people should be able to make their own choices. People are too they stupid. Ha- they have to make you, they, you have to sign that. Yeah, we're smarter I than them. Sm- I am smarter than them. I, the expert, can tell you how to live your life. Yep. Uh, yeah, so I like that. Yeah, so... Uh, there was one I saw which was like, she seems to lack an understanding of what public health really means and what a role as a minister in that area should be. Which, which is I, good. It's just correct. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I've got nothing against that. She yeah. does not understand what public health is. What a legend. We sent her, uh, we've, we've tried to get her for a, uh, an interview and maybe yeah. that'll happen, but, you know, she's an actual serving health minister. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, but, um, you know, to cast aside the funny for a second, like, it's like, you know, obviously I don't think people should smoke, but mm. it is not up to me. That's decide right. what other people do, which it's is like, an incredible thing for a health minister to say. Mm. Yeah. It's a bit like voting, mm. how we give people the right to choose who they want to vote for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and mm. yet they can't put a burger in their mouth without someone saying, but really, should you? Anyway, good on yourself. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, now, we've teased this in the show uh, once or twice, uh, but ba- here's this, this head- if this headline didn't wake you up, uh, I don't know what will. But anyway, uh, ma- this man, Shane Dillon, uh, is in Florida. Uh, so already this story is off to a good start. <laughs> the second there's a Florida man involved, this story gets wild. Do you guys ever do that thing where you just type Florida man and your own birthday into Google and whatever comes up, like find the story oh, that I've comes up? I've never done that. Someone have done that. Mm, uh, once. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but, Well, my one was like uh, Florida, Florida man, like on February 15th. So Florida man sends police on wild goose chase through a public golf course. Mm. Like he just <laughs> went through, like drove a car into the public golf course. Anyway. And that wasn't you? It was not me. Uh, not on my birthday celebration. But anyway, uh, so 23-year-old Shane Dillon from Florida. He is driving down the US Highway 90 last Sunday when a deputy from the Columbia County Sheriff's Office, also in Florida, noticed his I Eat Ass bumper sticker. Say that again, uh, please. I Eat Ass bumper sticker. Okay. Uh, the sticker, the deputy concluded, violate the state's obscenity law after Dylan refused to remove the part of his sticker to censor the word 
ass, uh, signing his first amendment right to free speech. The deputy arrested him and charged him with obscene riding on vehicles and resisting an officer without violence. Now, the charges have been dropped because indeed he does have a first amendment right to say on his bumper sticker, I eat ass. thoughts well i think today we're all ass eaters james <laughs> um, maybe not me <laughs> look and i think the great thing about the first amendment is you know if you want to have a sticker like that you can do it if you don't want to have a sticker like that you can do it i like the uh the policeman trying to go look you don't have to take the sticker off yeah. you just have to cover up ass yeah, yeah. trying to find a pragmatic solution <laughs> but uh look first they came for the ass eaters yeah and then then what then what but that's just that's an incredible story america has just got it figured out that's why i love america <laughs> like you can invoke the u.s <laughs> i just like someone who someone who who is like the person you would have to be to have that sticker on your car would also be able to go yeah well i've got a first amendment right sir yeah, just to um, <laughs> Just like we we take some of the founding fathers to modern day just to see where the First Amendment gets invoked, yeah. that thing. They're like, they're like, we got it right, guys. This is why we this is why we started the revolution. High fives, <laughs> yeah, the, but, the, but wash your hands first. Yeah, the experiment is on its way. All right. Anyway, uh, we're trying to get him, Shane Dillon, on the podcast as uh, well. But he's yeah. Well, uh, you know, we've got a few. We'll, we'll try and keep that family friendly if we do get him on. We got irons in the we'll, fire, yeah. Um, uh, we'll definitely talk about more the First Amendment aspect of that particular story than any other aspect. Oh, right. look, it's going to be a wide-ranging interview. Okay, let's move this on. Uh, Pete, uh, Dairy 2019 continues. Seems a bit of a theme. If Keen-eyed listeners, keen-eared listeners to the podcast who listened last week would note that during the podcast we said that throwing dairy at people seems to be a bit of a 2019 yep. Political thing, yeah, because dairy dairy took a few hits in the last couple of years. You shouldn't even eat dairy anymore. That's what the public health experts are saying. And yeah. now dairy's come roaring back. It's no longer a food. Now a missile. Now it's a it's an act, it's a political act. <laughs> Whilst we were saying that, yeah, the prime minister of Australia got uh, attempted, and it, we was the victim of an attempted egging, as Which people probably know. Is just humiliating. You missed. Yeah. You missed from that. How do you miss an egg? <laughs> so it's only one part of the egg that can't break, and you managed to hit that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. So I think it skimmed his head or something. But so we've seen milkshakes on yes. Tommy Robinson, egg on Fraser Anning, egg on the House of Bay economics man. Yep. And now one at the Prime Minister last week in Albury. You've all heard the story. I won't go into it too much. Um, yeah. To me, it's two things. One, dairy is back in a big way. Yep. Um, you know just as a missile, as a political act. And so I just, I can't understand missing an egg. Like well, that's got to be the most humiliating thing in the world. It was. Uh, she also knocked over an old lady as well oh, in the process. Oh, so she, the price of one. She had a good so not time. only did she miss an egg, she also did the one thing you don't want to happen. Yeah, it's like, it's going to sell your message. Yeah. And the police did find cannabis on her, so maybe she was high. Yeah. Which is why she missed the... Interesting that like the country seemed to get around egg boy against Fraser Anning mm -hmm. and then has completely abandoned egg girl. So yeah. has the country turned its back on egging? I think I think you've got to pick more. I think like broadly half the country doesn't mind ScoMo. Yeah, forty nine percent on recent polling. But I wouldn't think that Fraser Anning has the same level of support no, <laughs> amongst I, people. Thankfully, and uh, I think Australians don't like losers like she missed. Yeah, yeah. It, so. it yeah, we need an alternative reality where there was a successful egging. Yeah. Um, that is not a call to do it. Yes, People, definitely not. No, that's to create an alternative reality. Mm, that's, do that. That's, that's what I want. Okay. I don't want the egging, but I do want the ability to see what I'm like in other universes. Yeah. Maybe I'm better. Um, <laughs> I don't, 
think so. <laughs> oh, thank you. That must mean you like the current one. Uh, so, all right. Um, gotcha. Uh, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Evan Mulholland and uh, Dr. Darcy Allen and Professor Jason Potts for these mm, interviews. Great stuff. Uh, so, yeah, make sure you're following us on all of our social media as we count down towards the election. We're obviously going to have a whole lot of content coming out. And make sure you're heading over to the RMIT stuff. As well, uh, re- following Darcy and Jason on Medium to mm. keep up to date with their work. Uh, so thank you guys so much for listening and subscribing. Uh, See, Westeros needs some blockchain. Yes. It would be much better off. If yeah, had the, those competing the show would be three episodes long if they only had blockchain. They could <laughs> All have, the people could like, yeah. they don't have to pick this woman with a dragon. Yeah. Make your own institutions. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then the Night King can put his thing onto the blockchain and people yep. be like, that's not us. And yep. he goes, well, you know, I asked and I got the answer I didn't want, but I got an answer. So yeah. back to... Back to the great beyond for me. Uh, anyway, so uh, make sure you guys uh, also subscribe to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast where they take, uh, you know, the big issues of the day, talk about them very seriously. If you wish, Pete and I would just take things a bit more seriously every now and then. That's the podcast for you. And, I was uh, being serious. Were you though? <laughs> Uh, and then uh, that's it. So head on over to ipa.org.au slash join if you're not a member of the IPA. We've got a whole bunch of different membership programs you can join. You can become part of our community. You can help stand up for freedom in Australia. And if you are already a member, you can go to there. You can go there to donate as well. All right, are we all we all good? I'm good. 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 All right, see you guys next week. Say up. Whoa. <laughs>